We began studying Paul's first letter to the Corinthians back in September. We've taken some breaks, but we're back to it today. Paul is, if you'll remember, writing to a church in the city of Corinth, which is in, which was in modern-day Greece. He's writing around the year 55. He wrote with at least two purposes. First, he wrote in response to a letter that the Corinthians had sent him, and he writes to answer their questions, questions that he'll begin to answer in chapter 7. And then second, he wrote into response to negative reports that he had received, and he writes to confront them. In fact, his confrontation started in the 10th verse of chapter 1, and it will continue all the way through chapter 6. So we're still in the middle of the confrontational part of Paul's letter. Last time we picked up this book, we were in chapter 3, verses 10 through 15, and there Paul used an analogy. He said the church in Corinth was like a building, a building whose foundation had been laid by Paul, which was the gospel of Jesus Christ, and a building that was being built by the Corinthian Christians. The Christians in Corinth were on Christ, through Christ, and by Christ building a local church. And Paul's encouragement in verse 10 of chapter 3 was for those who were working to build up the church, that they build the church, that they build the fellowship and build the ministry with great care. Take care, he said, how each of you builds this church. Now in today's text, in verse 16 and 17, Paul addresses a, a different group of people. They are not building the church. They are destroying the church. And Paul has no encouragement for them. He has a warning. He has, we'll see, a severe warning. So we'll get to that warning after we pray together. But before we move forward, let's remind ourselves what we're doing here, especially now. This is God's Word. And in God's Word alone, we learn who we are. More importantly, we learn who God is. And preaching from this Bible, if it is inspired by God, will change our lives forever. One sermon can change your life forever. Every sermon can change your life forever. There are sermons that I've preached and had preached to me that have changed my life forever. So before I preach this sermon, we should pray together. Please bow your heads with me. Father in heaven, as we listen to this sermon, fill our minds with truth, fill our hearts with desire, and push our wills to trust, honor, and obey you. And let us hear your warning as we fellowship with one another in this church. 
And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. If you are using one of our church Bibles, which you're free to take with you if you don't own a Bible, you'll find today's text on page 619. As I mentioned before the prayer, there is a grave warning in verse 17. But before his severe warning, Paul makes a startling statement, and we find it in verse 16. So look there with me. Listen to Paul's startling statement, which he makes in the form of a rhetorical question. Verse 16. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? Look back now at the first four words. Do you not know? That is a phrase that Paul uses in all of his writings 11 times. He uses 10 of them here in this first letter to the Corinthians. And whenever Paul uses this phrase, what he means is, you should know this. When he says, do you not know? He means you should know this. Let me give you some examples. All of these in 1 Corinthians. 5 verse 6. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? 6 verse 2. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? 6 verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? 6.15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? And 9.24, do you not know that in a race all runners run, but only one receives the prize? In other words, you should know this. You should know this because I've told you this before. You should know this because it is common sense. There is no excuse for overlooking this fact. So it's not an actual question here where Paul is looking for information. He's making a statement. And let's look at the statement. It's a shocking statement. Do you not know, verse 16, that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Now, this verse has been frequently misunderstood. So we shouldn't assume that we know exactly what Paul is talking about. We need to break this down and make sure that we understand it. This startling statement of verse 16, this startling statement here is the reason for the severity of the warning Paul gives in verse 17. So we won't understand the severity of the warning if we don't get this shocking statement. So let's look at the what and then let's look at the who. 
what is Paul talking about in this remarkable statement? And then who is he saying it about? What is he saying? And who is he saying it about? So first, what is Paul talking about in this statement? Well, he's talking about the presence of God. He uses the word dwell, which means to reside or to inhabit a place. So we would typically use the word dwell in reference to our home address. We would use the word dwelling to refer to our home address. We may be present at many different places at many different times, but we dwell in one place. God is present at many different places. Here's the difference from us. God is present at many different places all the time, but he has special dwellings. There are special places where God dwells. There are special places where God abides. So, for example, on the one hand, God is, the big word is, omnipresent. The Bible makes it clear that God is omnipresent, which means that God is everywhere all the time. God is everywhere all the time, and so nothing is hidden from God. Nothing is hidden from God, and nothing is unknown to God. That is why, because of God's omnipresence and, of course, His omniscience and other attributes, but because of His omnipotence or His omnipresence, that's why it was so silly when Adam and Eve tried to hide from God in the garden. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere. He, he knew where they were. It's like the three-year-old hiding in the middle of the room with a bucket over his head. It's like when our four-year-old Reed came up to us this week wearing camouflage pants and said, Mommy, can you see my legs? <laughs> God is everywhere. He's everywhere. I believe the Bible teaches in Revelation 14 that God will even be present in hell. God is everywhere, but he is present everywhere in different ways. Ways. For example, he will be present in hell, but he will be present in hell, our catechism implies, unfavorably. Unfavorably. He will be there administering punishment. And at the same time that God is present in hell, unfavorably administering punishment, at the same time God will be present in heaven favorably pouring out love and affection. God is everywhere. And so God says things like Jeremiah 23, 24, where he speaks through the prophet Jeremiah can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? So God is present at many different places all the time, but he also 
has special dwellings. God is present everywhere, all the time. But God also has special dwellings. And the word used in our text today is dwell. Paul is talking about the special, favorable presence of God. And the metaphor he uses is the temple. Here's what he is saying. God is dwelling in you the way he has dwelt in the temple. God is dwelling in you. How is he dwelling in me? God is dwelling in you the way he dwelt in the temple. The temple. So we could flip through the Old Testament. We're not, but we could. We could flip through the Old Testament and see that of all the places, when you read the Old Testament, of all the places God's presence was found, arguably, nowhere was God's presence more powerfully and profoundly found than in His holy temple. Nowhere was God's presence found more profoundly and powerfully than in His holy temple. In this temple were two rooms. There was the outer room and the inner room. And the outer room and the inner room were separated by a thick curtain. And no one could enter into the inner room. If you want to find out what would happen if you entered into the inner room, watch the last 15 minutes of Raiders of the Lost Ark. (laughs) Only one man. The high priest was authorized to enter the inner room and only one day of the year. And if he entered on that one day of the year without observing all the divinely prescribed directions, he would be struck dead. And the reason he would be struck dead, the reason that this inner room of the temple was so dangerous, it was dangerous. The reason it was so dangerous is because Nowhere was the presence of God concentrated more profoundly and powerfully than in the temple. And what is Paul's statement here? Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? And it would be another sermon to fully understand how that is possible. There was a day when to enter into the dwelling place of God would have killed you. Think about this. There was a day when to enter into the dwelling place of God would have killed you. And yet now God has entered you and made you His dwelling place. That's profound. That is a startling statement, isn't it? That's a shocking statement. The other sermon that 
that could be preached about how that is possible could be given in one sentence. His favorable presence has been made possible by the death of Jesus in your place. His favorable presence has been made possible by the death of Jesus in your place. Which, by the way, was symbolized when upon his death on the cross, the actual curtain in the actual temple tore in two. Now who? That's the what, now who? Who is Paul talking about? And this is, this is often what gets misunderstood. So who is God's temple in whom God's spirit dwells? That's the what, the dwelling of God. So who is God's temple in whom God's spirit dwells? We're told here, you. The word you is said three times. I'll read verse 16 again. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Well, remember, this letter that Paul wrote, it would have been read like this. It would have been read probably by an elder to the assembled church. So that local church in Corinth would assemble together. Paul had written this letter to them. We have a letter from Paul, the planter of this church. They would gather them all, they would assemble together, and then this letter would have been written. So you, in that context, could have various meanings. It could refer to an individual, a specific individual, you. It could refer to a specific group within the church. It could refer to each individual within the church. For example... And I think this is usually how this verse is interpreted. Paul could be saying, do each of you know that each of you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in each of you? Paul could mean that. In fact, that is what Paul says and means in chapter 6, verse 19, where he says, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you. And there he means, do each one of you know that each of your bodies is a temple of the Holy Spirit? But here, that is not what Paul is referring to. In this text, the context... And the form of this word make clear that Paul has something else in mind. Here, when Paul says you, he means something like you all. He means and is referring to the entire local church. It means something different. He's saying this, you, local church, are God's temple. That's something else. He will say, and it is true, that each one of you is like a temple, and God's Spirit dwells in each one of you. But here he means you all, collectively, as the local church, you are God's temple. He's not here talking about individual Christians. He's talking about the local church in Corinth. 
a congregation. They, not each one of them is, they are a building, he has said. They, he says here, getting even more specific, are not just a building. They are a temple. In other words, God's Spirit comes and dwells among us in a specific and special way, in a profound and powerful way when we gather together as a local church. I'll say that again. This is what Paul means. God's Spirit comes and dwells among us in a specific and special way, in a profound and powerful way, when we gather together as a local church. It's something else. It's something different. It's something specific. It's something more special. It's something profound. It's something powerful. We scatter and we gather. When you scatter... God's presence goes with you. Each one of you who is a Christian. When you placed your faith in Christ, God's favorable presence came. His spirit came and dwelled in you. Took up residency in your soul, in your heart, however you want to put that. And so as we scatter, God's presence goes with us. God is with us. But there is a special, specific, profound powerful presence of God as He dwells, as He comes in our midst, as He is among us only when we gather together as a local church. It's very interesting. The Greek word for church in the New Testament, the word is ekklesia. The literal meaning is assembly. The word church in your New Testament literally means assembly. So, we are what we are when we gather together. A church. We are what we are in the clearest, most explicit way. When we gather together. And when we gather together. We collectively form a temple. Where the spirit of God. Comes and dwells. There are other verses that talk about this. You could go to 1 Peter 2. 4 through 5. Where individual Christians are described as. Living stones, but that together they become a spiritual house. We're called the household of God in Ephesians 2, 19 through 22. In his second letter to the Corinthians, in 6 verse 16, Paul says, For we are the temple of the living God. And I'll quote Matthew 18. Matthew 18, verses 19 through 20. Again, I say to you, this is Jesus speaking, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Is Jesus saying that he is not present in a Christian's life unless they're together? 
That's not what he's saying, because you each are a temple of the Holy Spirit. But there is another special, profound, powerful, significant way in which God comes and dwells among his people when two or three or 200 are gathered in his name as a local church, as an assembly, as a gathering of God's people. And so this is true for us. Think about it. In this moment. And it was not true two hours ago. You were brushing your teeth. You're getting ready for church. You were probably arguing with your wife, probably scolding your children. And then you came and your face was happy and. Now, you may have just been trying to project something that wasn't really there, but you should be happy when you come into this place. And a lot of those problems, I don't know if you've experienced that, a lot of those problems should melt away as you're singing these songs. How many times I've come into this place with problems that were big when I came in the door, and they were so small when I went out these doors. Because something profound happened here. Something powerful happened here. We became God's temple. And God came and dwelled among us. And even now, in a way he wasn't two hours ago, when we were apart. As we now are together, we, Veritas Church, we are God's temple. And God is dwelling in our midst. It's why we gather together every Sunday. We haven't missed one in the over 10 years we have existed. We are God's temple. We know this. His Holy Spirit comes and dwells among us. He is present and active in all that we do. He is present and active in a special, profound, powerful way when we gather together. And listen, that presence can't get to you on your couch. That presence can't get to you in a coffee shop. That presence can't get to you through the internet. Can't. I'm not saying that there aren't legitimate reasons why we're not here sometimes. We all know that there is. It should grieve us to not be here. We should long to be back. Maybe you've been gone. Maybe you've been sick. And Monday morning, I know with great excitement and anticipation, you're waiting for that sermon to download so that you can catch up. And just don't ever, the thought of missing one of my words terrifies you and keeps you up at night. <laughs> And so you, you're emailing us and texting us. I just, I'm, I'm flailing here. When's it going to be uploaded so that I can download it? And that's great that you do that. And, and if you can't be here, I'd encourage you to do that. But there's just no way. There's just no way you're going to get what you get when you're here. Because we're talking about the dwelling place of God. We're talking about the profound and powerful presence of God that is only accessible when we gather together. Okay, we've done the hard work. 
That is Paul's startling statement. And now the severity of the warning to follow, it should come as no surprise. So look at the next sentence in verse 17. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. Holy smokes. But that should come as no surprise if we grasped what he just said. If anyone, so this could be anyone, if anyone of you destroys God's temple, remember what that means. Remember what he's talking about. He doesn't mean the or an actual physical temple. I mean, the physical temple in Jerusalem hasn't existed since like 70 A.D., almost 2,000 years. He's not talking about destroying an actual physical temple. He means the spiritual temple. He means the assembled local church. He means Veritas Church and every other local church. Now, no man, no woman could ever destroy the universal church. There's a difference. You know, the universal church is people for and from all time who have been saved. Some are alive. Many have died. They're in Roseville. They're in Sacramento. They're in Europe. They're in Asia. They're in Africa. It's anywhere and everywhere you find Christians. They are members of the universal church, capital C. And then you have lowercase c, churches. And the New Testament speaks of both. And a local church is just an identifiable, visible expression of the universal church. Well, he's not talking about the universal church. No one can destroy the universal church. Jesus himself said, Matthew 16, 18, I tell you, you're Peter, and on this rock, his confession, I will build my church, not a local church like right here, but the church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. No one destroys the universal church. But listen, but a man or a woman can destroy a local church. I've seen it. And many of you have too. You've experienced it. It is possible for a man. It is possible for a woman to harm a local church to inflict injury on a local church, even to destroy a local church. And this warning is for them. Some people don't work to build the church, which is what he had been talking about in the verses before, but they work to destroy the church. And in this church in Corinth, it becomes clear, especially as we read these first six chapters, there were people who were working, whether intentionally or not, to destroy the church. Paul has been confronting them. They've been destroying the church through jealousy and strife. Chapter 3, verse 3. While there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? They have been destroying the church through factions and allegiances to certain teachers. Chapter 4, verse 6. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. Another, 
And they've been destroying the church through arrogance. Chapter 4, 19 and 20. But I will come to you soon, Paul said, if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, in, but in power. I've seen this in local churches. Men and women, intentionally or not, destroying the local church. I think I've seen it as I thought about it this week. I think I've seen it in this church in just the last 10 years. Not now, but I think I've even seen it in this church. People, members whose theology and attitudes and actions work to harm, injure, tear down, and even destroy the church. So how will God handle this? It's not a slap on the wrist, is it? This is the warning that God's retribution is coming. If anyone, verse 17, destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. Same word used, destroy, destroy. In other words, the punishment fits the crime is the point. You destroy, you will be destroyed. Charles Hodge in his commentary said, God is not less jealous of the spiritual temple than he was of the typical temple built of wood and stone by the hands of men. Ministers injure the souls of men and injure the church when they preach false doctrine and therefore they defile the temple of God and will certainly be punished. You can think of the physical temple in the Old Testament. You can think of how God responded when people messed with the physical temple. Remember the Babylonians. They were one group who came and destroyed God's temple. And in Isaiah chapter 47, you can read about God's retribution. Babylon at one time was the greatest city in the entire world. And now, it's a little village surrounded by a desert in Iraq. They destroyed God's temple and paid the price. We have examples in the New Testament professing Christians that were working not to destroy the physical temple, but to destroy the spiritual temple, to destroy local churches. Some of that was taking place by the time John wrote his revelation. We can read about them. You remember in chapter 2 and 3 of Revelation. Chapter 2 and 3 of Revelation are seven letters, seven short little letters written to seven churches. I went back and read them this week and was reminded. But you had people in each of those churches, well, most of them, who were working to destroy the church, destroy the spiritual temple. And God had very harsh words for them. I'll read you some examples of how He was going to deal with their destroying of the temple. So in 2, 4 through 6 is a short letter to the church in Ephesus. 
He calls them to repent, and he says, if not, God said, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. That means God's saying, I will shut the doors of your church. I will close your church. I will shut down your church. I will cause your church to disband and no longer exist if you don't repent. He wrote in 2, 14 through 16 to the church in Pergamum. He tells them, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. To the church in Thyatira in chapter 2, verses 20 through 23, there was a particular woman in that church that was working to destroy it. He said, behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed. And those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. And I will give to each of you according to your works. God's saying, I'm not sweeping anything under the carpet here. I'm not overlooking this offense. I'm not going to wink at it. You destroy the local church, I'll destroy you. To the church in Sardis, in chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, he says to that church, you have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. He calls them to repent. He says, wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. If you do not wake up, I'll come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. And then finally, to the church in Laodicea. He gave this graphic image. I know your works. You're neither hot or cold. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. So, because... You see how verse 16 and 17 relate to one another. Because the local church is the temple of God, build it up. Because the local church is the temple of God, build it up. Do not harm it. If you harm it, God will harm you. What a severe warning following a shocking statement. There's one more sentence in our text today. It is a restatement of the point he has already made at the end of verse 17, for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. God's temple is holy and you are that temple. God's temple is holy. The church is holy. It means set apart. The church is holy. The church, this church, has been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. The church is the bride of Christ. It is the household of God. Jesus is the head of the church. Don't mess with the church. The church is sacred. We've learned it is the dwelling place of God. It is the pillar and buttress of truth, we're told elsewhere. It is where God's people gather. 
It is where God's word is preached. It is where communion is administered. It is where believers are baptized. The church is holy and you are the church. And you are the church as you gather this morning. And as you gather this morning as this church, you are the temple of God. And God makes his dwelling among us. In conclusion, so what? How should we respond to a word like this? How should we apply this? And I have three suggestions for you, three ideas. Number one, heed the warning. I mean, that's what you do with a warning. Heed the warning, which means to pay careful attention to it. A warning like this? A warning this severe? I wouldn't want to assume that I'm working to build up the church. I'd want to make sure. I consider my level of commitment. I consider my words. Consider my attitude. Consider my actions. I want to clear my conscience. This is a very severe warning. I don't want to be harmed by God. I don't want in the end to be destroyed by God. I know deception is a real thing. I know delusion is a real thing. I know there's people that will meet Jesus and be surprised and expect to enter into his favorable presence and will be cast into his unfavorable presence. And I don't want that to be me. So I want to do what the scripture calls us to do, to examine myself daily. I want to examine myself to see whether or not I'm in the faith. I want to make my calling and election sure. I want to have real relationships with real people who know really what's going on so they can call me out on my stuff. I want them to love me with hard words. I want them to be able to confront me. I want to confess my sin. I don't want those things to live in secret. I want to be exposed. I want it to be dragged into the light because I don't want to be working to destroy the church and think I'm building up the church. So don't dismiss the warning, but heed the warning and pay careful attention to it. That is the main point of this text. The main point is clearly this, worrying, this, 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 this warning to those who are destroying the church. So we've got to heed the warning. But I have two other suggestions. Number two, treasure the temple. Cherish the local church. If you're visiting and you're committed to another local church, I hope this text helps you love your church. And cherish your church. If you're a member of this church, I hope you hear about this and what happens when we come and when we gather together, how special this is, how profound it is, how powerful the presence of God is in our midst. I hope you look forward to Sundays in a way you haven't before. I hope you look forward to any time that we're going to gather and fellowship and be together. I hope you, you feel a love and affection for the people you know, maybe even those you don't know, but are a part of this local church, I hope you feel in a love and affection for them that you didn't feel before. I hope you're changed forever in that regard. Number two, treasure the temple. Cherish the local church. Esteem the local church. 
You and I live in a day and an age where the local church is largely marginalized. It's pushed aside. It's seen as optional. I could go or not go. We are the church after all. No, you're not the church with some Christian buddies in a coffee shop. You're not the church sitting down watching videos from 10 different pastors during the week. You're not the church as you sit on your couch and do your devotion. You're the church when you get your butt here on Sunday morning and you worship with God's people. That's when you're the church. So cherish the church. Don't belittle the church. Don't belittle the church. Don't belittle other churches. If you're a part of this church, I hope you love this church. But that should never cause you to look down on other churches. Every church is different. There are churches who call themselves churches, and they are not churches. And those churches and Christians in those churches should be warned, and those churches should be called out. And we've even done that at times. But there are lots of good churches with gospel being preached from the pulpit, organized and structured in a way that pleases and honors God, administering communion, administering baptism, gathering together every week. Don't belittle those churches. Cherish those churches. Don't mock the church. Don't cast aside the church. Don't see the church as optional. Don't see the local church as something you get to just take or leave. If you're a Christian, yes, you are a member of the universal church. But that only gets actualized and that only gets realized as you commit to a local church. A local church is the expression of the universal church. It is what God has invented for your good and for His glory. And it is not optional. It's good that you can feel and experience the presence of God throughout the week. And you should. But there is no substitute. There is no substitute for committing to and gathering together with Christ's local church and His people. Participate. If you're a part of this church or another church, participate in the church. Participate in her services and gatherings. Some are more important than others. You probably already know this Sunday morning is the most important thing a church does. It is our most important tradition. When you come here, engage. Engage. Participate. Don't distract others, young people. We have young people here. I, I have young people. I love my young people. So proud of my young people. Young people, I understand that some of you, kids, teenagers, you believe in God. You believe the gospel. But you don't feel the same love the same desire for God in your heart, and you know this, that maybe you think your mom does or your dad does, and that's okay. I think as you mature, that's going to change. But what could happen is as you come here on a Sunday and you don't maybe want to be here as much as mom and dad want to be here and you're not as excited to get here as mom and dad are excited to get here, you need to be here. 
And there's not a better place on the planet for you right now. But not only do you need to be here, even if you're not feeling it, you need to participate. You need to participate. And you need to engage. When we sing the songs, you should sing. I can't tell you to sing them with your whole heart because your whole heart might not be engaged in it. You can't tell me that either. But you can sing. When we pray, you should bow your head and you should listen. When I preach or someone else preaches, you should look at them and you should listen. Because you never know when God's going to use something in this service where he is present in the most powerful, profound way and change you forever. Don't be a distraction to people around you. You're getting up and moving around and sometimes you just can't help it. And I understand and you pee like 56 times a day and you got to get up and that's okay. That's okay. I get it. I understand it. I've got young people. But you don't want to distract others. God may be working in the heart right now of that gentleman sitting behind you. You want to get in the way of that? Of course you don't. Grown-ups, adults, engage. Participate. David made a joke earlier, but I totally understand it. Man, it's really hard to engage in a sermon, and I know this from experience, and check your phone at the same time. Keep tabs on it at the same time. I'm compulsive with my phone. I've got to, like, put it down or, or give it to somebody and say, go put this somewhere and don't tell me where you put it. I want to check the email, and I don't want any little red bubbles, and I've got to get it crossed off, and I want to see the score, and I don't want to miss the latest news feed, and I can be like that. If I'm doing that during a service, I'm just trying to be very practical here. If I'm doing that during a service or doing that in a sermon, and if you are, it's very difficult to really be engaged. It's very difficult to truly appreciate. If this is as big a deal as it is, and it is, how are you preparing? Are you preparing the night before? Are you staying up late and coming early? Or are you getting to bed early the night before? You waking up and doing what you need to do? Are you preparing? I'm not saying, are you, are you considering what you're going to do in the morning? Are you considering what you're going to eat? Are you going to consider what you're going to wear? I'm not going to get legalistic about that. And you know that we're not that kind of church. I dress a certain way and I have personal convictions about why I dress a certain way. All I would say is prepare when you come here. If you show up disheveled, and you smell, and you got like pajama pants on, uh, you could do better. <laughs> uh, you could do better. Uh, maybe there's just, it was just one of those mornings, you know, come just as you are, all right, to a point. <laughs> we don't really mean that. <laughs> Cherish the church. Prioritize these people. Prioritize these people. I'm speaking now specifically to those of you who are members of this church. Prioritize these people. Do good to all, especially, the scriptures say, to those who are in the household of God. Prioritize these people. If you love anybody, love these people. That means you need to get to know these people. That means you need to build relationships with these people. And in this day and in this age, we all know that typically takes a long time and a lot of work. We're all very busy. We're all going in a hundred different directions. Most of us live miles from one another. We rarely see each other. It takes a lot of work 
and a lot of effort and a lot of time to get to know one another. But we've got to get to know one another so that we can love one another and prioritize one another. So prioritize these people. If you're getting to know people, get to know these people. If you're making friendships, make friendships with these people. If you're loving people, love these people. Pray with these people. Pray for these people. Come to a members meeting and listen intently and take notes. Or read Mr. Balzer's or Mr. Weissel's notes as they'll post them on CCB and see what the requests that were brought up were. Print it out. Put it in your car. Put it on your mirror. Put it on your desk. Put it in your purse and pray for these people. Prioritize these people. Carry the joys and the burdens of these people with you wherever you go throughout the week. May, may your church and the members of your church never be far from your heart and from your mind. Finally, number three. So that was heed the warning, cherish the local church or treasure the temple. And finally, number three, thank God for making you and us his dwelling place. Those are two things. And if I were to pray that, I would say, thank you, God, for making me your temple. As you said through Paul in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19, that, that my body, my body is your temple and your Holy Spirit dwells in me. Thank you, God, for making me your temple. But not only that, we've learned today, God, thank you for making us your temple. Thank you for coming and dwelling among us in a profound and powerful way. And for those of you who are here today and are maybe not believers, you're not a Christian, we would love and we pray that you would become a part of this sacred community. That you would become part of God's church, his assembly, his gathering, his people, his household, his family, his bride. Now, how do you do that? Well, you don't sign up. You don't sign up. Uh, you don't stand up. You don't come forward. Uh, you don't raise your hand. There's nothing for you to repeat. But here's what you must do. You must repent. That means you have to turn around like 180 degrees. You have to repent. What you have to turn from is your sin. You have to turn from doing things your own way. You have to, you have to turn from loving Anything and everything else more than God. You have to turn from that. You have to turn from disobedience of God. You have, to, you have to turn from ignoring God. You have to turn from being indifferent to God. You have to turn from all of that. You have to stop going your own way, and you have to turn to God. You have to hear this gospel that we preach here and believe it, and believe it, and place all your faith and all your trust and all your reliance not on anything you could ever do because there's nothing you could ever do, but on everything Jesus did. 
and commit the rest of your days, whether as we sung this morning, they will be long or short, commit the rest of your days to honoring, loving, and serving God through Jesus Christ. For those of us who are believers, every Sunday following every sermon, we respond now by by coming forward and taking communion together. We do this in obedience to Jesus Christ. He has commanded us as, a, as his church to do this. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three and following. Paul writes, For I have received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So what are we doing? We are remembering and we are proclaiming the Lord's sacrificial death because he has not come back yet. And so we do this every single week. And you are invited to take communion with us if you are a baptized believer, if you have confessed your sin and placed your trust for salvation and the work of Christ, and if you are part of a local church, whether it's this or another, that faithfully preaches the gospel. We will have leaders up front to serve. We ask that you would empty into the center aisle and come forward and then return to your seats from the outside, and then please wait. And we will eat and drink the juice together as a church. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, in response to your word today, we are turning our attention now to the sacrificial death of Jesus. May you be glorified as we remember and as we proclaim his sacrificial death in our place so that we could be reconciled to you. In his name we pray, amen.